Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has been taking the world by storm. My guest this week is a practitioner of BJJ and shares some of his motivations for discovering this sport and why he chases mastery of it. This week's episode comes with a trigger warning. Marshall mentions briefly his brother's suicide attempt. If that is not for you, please tune in next time for another trauma dump. What trauma do you want to talk about? It's a little a little tricky uh, for me to talk about. I've talked about it on a podcast before, and it very upset my parents because childhood trauma stories inevitably involve parents' trauma as well. And so I try to be a little respectful of like not explaining their story because I don't really know it. Okay. But I've had lots of insights into it, and I was very much affected, you know. And so you had a good childhood? Um, in, in a lot of ways, it was, it was, it was, it was picturesque, right? Like we grew up with lots of money in Southern California. We owned our house in Orange County and I was private school the whole way. And so it's like a super privileged existence. Um, but things became tough when I was around 10 or so. My brother was acting out a lot at school and fighting a lot at home and just being a generally unstable person. And he started attempting suicide in the house, well, like repeatedly. And it was very stressful for everybody, understandably, a nightmare for my parents. And the way everybody kind of kind of dealt with it is we all just kind of withdrew, right? We live in a nice big house. Everybody can have their own, their own TV, basically, as you have kind of boiled down to. We just have quiet dinners and then just kind of separate. And I always had this in my mind that like at some point we'll come together like on a sitcom and like talk about it. My dad's gonna be like, hey, this is what happened. He's around do. Yeah. And that never, never happened. That's what you were imagining as a child. I was imagining at some point my parents would come to me and, and talk to me about, because when he started attempting my parents, um, the, the, the solution they came to is they sent him away to these different therapeutic boarding schools. So you went to go take care of horses in Utah for a couple of years, stuff like that. Yeah. And so what it boils down to is I haven't had a relationship with my brother since seeing him attempting a bunch of suicide and haven't really talked to my parents much since. And this was, you know, 12 years ago, more, 22 years ago. I was way off. I was off by a decade, dude. I was way wrong. 22 years ago yeah and that's the thing as this is like something i've been i've been reading about called a parts work where every emotional stage that like is overwhelming for us it gets locked in our body at a certain age so as i'm telling this story i feel myself traveling through time age-wise yeah i was just 22 for a moment i was like 12 earlier like i'm going all the way and so it's, it's a tough one, man. This has been the story that I've been really thinking about and trying to understand for the past 10 years. Like when I, when I left college, I went to Asia, got super deep into meditation. And this was kind of the catalyst for me realizing this story and the impact that's had on everything in my life as trauma does. So you were, you were 10. Your brother was how old? 12. 12. Yeah, a child. Yeah. yeah. And do you know why? Or like, have you been able to suss out why? Then this is, 
this is the conversation nobody wants to have. So even though it's been 22 years, nobody's talked about it. I've, I've had a couple phone calls from my parents in the past couple of years where they can kind of give me some information. Like, I just asked my mom, like, what happened? Like, can you give me, like, a timeline? Like, because it was just such a weird, chaotic time. Like, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of things I don't know. And um, that was, like, a big step. Like, she kind of just laid it out, like, oh, you know, when he was born, I was like this, and then this happened. And as a toddler, he had my mom wrapped around her finger, he said, or she told me. So he was just making demands. And toddlers, you know, they only want a couple things, TV and candy and... So he got all these things, and my mom was just exhausted, trying to like, re being be reactive. Well, that's the thing. She got postpartum with me. Oh, and she told me she still has it. <laughs> and she tried to say it really sweetly. It's just you know, like I, I, I'm not, I'm not depressed because of you, but it's just your birth, and then still, <laughs> it's like, oh, my entire existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. It's good to know. It's good to know. <laughs> And so she's been on antidepressants since then. And that, I don't exactly know the effects of antidepressants, but I know it's kind of like a withdrawing, it's hard to pay attention. Yeah. Your emotions kind of recede. And that's how I, I remember my mom. She was just kind of like staring off a little bit, kind of just doing her own thing. And never, never there for me when I really needed. I don't want to say never, but enough times that I- That's, that's the way I feel. Yeah, in general, I'm sure that she was there a lot of times. Yeah, you can't skid the knee. I'm sure she took care. Yeah. Uh, so your brother was like just spoiled. I, I, that I mean that's that that's a hard job for me to go from being spoiled to then suicidal. Like, right? It must have been something that was being removed from his life to to feel it. Yeah, and this is what I don't. This is what I don't know. Because it was obviously a long time going, right? Like, so a big part of it was definitely like, we ate a crazy amount of candy. And so I just learned about this recently because I was eating candy every day until I was 30. And the first time I drank ayahuasca, you have to give it up. And so after that, like all my anxiety and like my own pseudo-suicidal, pseudo that's a hard thing to say, pseudo-suicidal thoughts vanished. And so I don't understand this connection, but I've felt it. And looking back, we, we, it was just crazy. We, we were beating bags of candy and cans of soda every single day. And I don't think we had much else. Like, I don't really remember. Like, mom didn't really cook that many dinners for us. And so I don't know the effects of that, but, like, psychological diet effects are coming out more and more. And I think someday I will understand that connection, but right now I, I really don't. I just felt it. I felt it and I, I, I've seen it. You said that you go back to 22, right? Because what happened? Oh, I came to Taiwan. Oh, no, I wasn't processing anything. So like grade, so age 11, 12, 13, all the way to 18, you're just going through the motions. Yeah, just trying to stay busy. Try, try not to think about it. Uh, wrestling. Yeah. So first it was filmmaking. That's what I was into. Uh, from 10 to like freshman year of high school, I switched, switched to wrestling. So before that, every summer, uh, I would be making movies at the summer camp for years, years and years and years. And then straight into wrestling and wrestling led to marijuana, which really helps to not process. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just stayed busy. Started in jiu-jitsu and then traveling. 
And as I was traveling and start slowing down, that's when um, kind of got on a slippery slope of analyzing and, and trying to figure out how I became like this. Okay. Yeah. And that's around 22? Yeah. Tw tw I finished university and flew to Taiwan like two weeks later. Oh, really? Yeah. So this isn't your first time in Taiwan? Correct. What brought you here in the first place? Uh, I wanted to drink tea. And yeah, 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 yeah. Tai Taiwan's got some of the best tea in the world. Uh, when I was in university, the University of San Diego, um, I'd be in business school Monday, Monday through Thursday. Go meerkats. I don't know what's. Nah, man. Toreros. It's a human. Uh, Toreros, the guy. <laughs> These are Spanish. Is a Torero. So that's the mascot. Okay. Yeah. The dude. Sorry to interrupt. It's okay. So I'd be there Monday through Thursday in business school. My major was accounting. And on Fridays, I'd go hang out at this Chinese-style tea shop in Ocean Beach, San Diego. Around that time, what I did was I went to this meditation and tea cult in Miali. And I stayed there for, like, several weeks. Like, it was, it was super beautiful, man. We'd get up early in the morning, meditate, drink, like, literally the best tea in the world they just have. Their tea room is just cakes and cakes and cakes of the super epic tea and then eat vegetarian food and do cult things um and then from there man i just traveled all around i went to other countries and taiwan seems like the spot so then that's when you start processing yeah this with your brother yeah and trying to reach out to your family well first i i started i had to focus on my feelings towards my parents right so i, I did a, a seven day retreat where all I thought about was just how angry I am at my dad. Mm -hmm. And on the very last day, I just had this overwhelming compassion for him. I was like, oh, he probably feels this way about his dad too. I'm sure it's like a very similar, like it's almost like a cutout. And I had that thought and I was like, ah, oh, okay. Total forgiveness. Moving right along. And then the mom stuff came with ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is very feminine. And so she showed me exactly who my mother was and from the baby perspective, you know, from my angle, at the moment of my birth, I just saw her face perfectly, and I saw her attention being pulled in every direction but mine. So she has her own demons, she has her own past, her own traumas that I don't really know about, pulling her one way. And my brother, like I mentioned earlier, he had, I don't know exactly what, but he was just, he, he could control my mother, as, as she said. And so her attention's over there, like, for example, I have a photo where I'm like a newborn and I'm in my mom's hand and she's clearly was like this. But then my brother's over here and she's handing him a gift. You know what I mean? Like it's some sort of like it's a it's a placation or something, you know, like to get this guy so he doesn't panic. And so I'm here like totally unstable. Like, you know, my mom's not like a, a, a power lifter. She's holding me with one arm. <laughs> Not paying attention. Would your mom like show you the same attention she showed your brother? No, no. Two completely different parenting styles. Definitely. Like, so that's is what like the image of my mom looking in different directions. She was always looking at something else and didn't have much left over for me. Yeah. It's interesting. Is that, in my opinion, that's the older child syndrome? Oh, the younger usually gets the more? Yeah. Right. And they almost should, you know? <laughs> everybody should get a hundred percent yeah and so he he i'm sure he picked up on that very early and he's a very smart guy 
So he started dominating that game, and I, I didn't stand a chance. And then, you know, the ultimate end of that game, not the ultimate end, but if you play that game long enough, you're throwing tantrums to get your way, and you're acting out more and more and more, and you start embodying it, and you start living it, and that ends in the most, you know, terrible attention-getting thing you can do is attempt suicide. You know, just everybody stops what they're doing and is totally focused on that. It's a, it's, the, it's the worst possible scenario, one, one of the worst possible scenarios in anyone's life, right? And so that that's what I went to, and that was way too much for my parents, and we haven't talked much since. And this is the feeling of talking to my parents, is like, hey, this is, like, let's catch up. Like, I, I have these huge questions, and now opportunity's gone. Dad's here. Yeah. And if I just talk to my dad, it's fine. But then he gets my mom in, and he stops talking. Do you feel like your brother is still that... Like still seeking the attention from outside sources, or do you feel like I have no idea, man. I mean, I, I guess so. Like, I, I know he he works at a theater. He's doing plays and stuff, and so that's some sort of attention seeking. And I know this because I have it too, right? Like, he met me through stand up comedy. That's an incredibly attention seeking activity. And the reason, one of the reasons I love jujitsu now is I get lots of attention in it, and so I have this like. I don't know exactly what narcissistic means, but it's something like that. Where I just, I really purely just kind of want that attention, that applause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is like kind of an embarrassing thing to admit, right? Because like I didn't really think this about myself. It's a little bit of a shadow side thing that I really have to lean into. Like I do think cameras should be on me. I do think people should be like, like waving to me in the streets. Well, what did you like have this recognition? Uh, pretty recently, like. Cause it, cause yeah, it's such an embarrassing thing to admit, like, and maybe it shouldn't be, but it, it was for a long time. I was kind of like, oh no, I just kind of like writing jokes, you know. <laughs> like, no, man, I want, I, I want, I want strangers to applaud. That's what I want. Someone who didn't get a lot of attention, I could totally see, because, like, both of your brothers, to you and your brother, desire this attention of every mother. Basically, everybody does. Yeah, yeah, and it's just two different extreme examples of trying to get the attention or the love of, of the distant mother. Yeah. What advice would you have for a kid in a similar situation? Oof. It's a tough question, man. I, I think what really helped me was, was wrestling class because then you're just surrounded by other dudes just getting stronger for a goal. And I think wrestling's a bit too tough for people, but I really... Uh, you know, I'm I'm biased, but like I really think jujitsu is like the best thing for for lonely, unrecognized uh, people. Yeah, it's the most welcoming community. It's like it gives you an impossible task. Like to learn jujitsu is literally impossible. No, no, nobody's ever done it. Okay, <laughs> sure, man. <laughs> well, stand up comedy as well. No, nobody's nobody's perfected it, but they're trying. Some people are close. And they might get closer, but they're not going to hit it. But yeah, that's, that's, stand-up is a different thing than physicality. But it's the same in that aspect of nobody can really att attain it. Yeah. You can get close, and you can get respected and applauded. Do you think there's something to be said there for your desire to pursue these two, two avenues of life that are impossible to achieve? Oh, I've got more. Uh, <laughs> not just two, man. Okay. Part, this is something that I, I forgot about, but when I was like 25, I did a bunch of these Zen Buddhist meditation retreats. And part of it, I forgot we did this, but like, 
like maybe like at the end of a seven day retreat, you do this like super intense chant. And part of it is you vow to reach enlightenment and save all beings. And it's kind of tongue in cheek, right? It's kind of like, yeah, reach enlightenment, wink. Because it's a, it's again, it's an unattainable thing that we can just get closer to. And so if you just meditate a lot, you'll kind of like, you'll feel yourself inching closer. When you stop meditating, you get a little further away. Okay, there's something to that. Keep meditating. Then you have some insights and life gets a little better. But to reach enlightenment is like a hilarious tongue-in-cheek thing. Okay. Yeah, re- reach a stage where you have no problems. All right, how do I do that? Some people... Yeah, I guess if you if you ask Buddhists how do you reach enlightenment, they'd better say that or Buddhisattvas, all these Buddhisattvas have done it. Blast. Have you, have you ever actually met a Buddhisattva? Uh, I mean, I think I met like a million of them. But they they don't they don't admit that that's what they are. You meet a bodhisattva, they're out in the world, right? This is the the point of the story. So you just meet them, like they're just out there. They just do something nice. A bodhisattva is anyone where you encounter them, and your day gets a little better. So you, that's a bodhisattva. Uh, I mean, so enlightenment comes in moments. And so so to to speak of an enlightened person would be they they're just hidden every moment. They keep hitting it. So it, it it's a gamma frequency in your brain. And everybody has moments where they hit this. And so if I meet someone and I'm just going to give them that title of enlightened, I'll just bestow it on them and then walk away before anything can contradict. Have you done any ther- therapy with a like Western psychologist, psychiatrist? Uh, when I was when I was in high school, I did. And he was like, I think you're all right, man. Just get out of here. And I was like, you sure? Like I was crying all the time. Like, <laughs> like it was... All right, man. Really? Uses. I think you're all right. Yeah, he was my mom's. Uh, my mom's guy. Like she, she was seeing him. I don't know how often for how many years. And so since then, I've gone to like lots of different um, non-traditional therapists. Yeah. Have you tried a second Buster like like traditional therapist? I tried. I tried. I tried it in Taipei, um, but it's not so available. There's one place called the Center in Tianmu. And so I applied for a therapist there, and I got um, a master's student. So it was free, free sessions, um, and it was okay. Like I just went there and talked to her, and she'd go, "Oh, hmm, oh, hmm," and take notes. <laughs> and so it was just kind of like me doing a podcast, like, and it was good because I was dating a crazy girl at the time. And so I just kind of get there and like verbally, like she did this, and then this happened, and then. And I kind of like, oh, what do you think? And now I go see a Hakomi therapist, which is awesome. I think that's really like the future. And that's kind of what I'm studying and going to workshops for. And I really, really am always thinking of ways to spread the word of this. Because it's such, people haven't heard this word and it's not obvious. Yeah. Ah, it's going to be tricky. And this is kind of a problem, man. It has a wild name called Hakomi. Hakomi therapy. All right. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Um... It's described, so it's a somatic therapy, which means training yourself to see. <laughs> That's Semitic. <laughs> somatic means in your body. <laughs> somatic means like like seeing and tracking your emotions in your body. Okay. And so what Komi is, is they call it assisted self-discovery. So someone sits there with you. They can listen to your story and track your body 
because every every thought you have is simultaneously has an emotion which simultaneously has uh, a feeling in your body changes something yeah but if we're constantly thinking which who isn't you know and if we're talking for example like i can't talk to you and think about what i'm saying and check my emotion and check my body i can only do one of those i can only say these words and if i take a moment and a deep breath i can do one or the other one in that moment i can feel my body when i'm talking to you i can't and so when you're doing hakomi you the you sit down and you talk about whatever you think is bothering you which you know everyone has stories about something happened recently or in the past or you know whatever and so the therapist will sit there and they're not really listening to you <laughs> they don't really care what they're saying they're looking at your body if you this little fear that that you expressed earlier it's so beautiful of entering a place and being scared of rejection right that's so common it's so normal it's so human and so i've gone and so i've gone to a lot to practice getting past that and stepping into things and so you say you're a little nervous to go to acro so was i i just showed up i showed up i showed up one one week and sat there and watched and then i came back the next week and was like oh could i practice and luckily right now my, my apartment's right by don park so I was, i'll go home come back yeah it was logistically nice and now we're buddies now i'm in but that that initial process is is nerve-wracking because it can go wrong you can get rejected even passively or like yeah and it's tough it shocks me that you yield that way i looked as good as you i would never be afraid to do anything i like if you looked like me you'd feel like i do and i'm scared of a lot of things i'm human bro <laughs> life is suffering that is it's extremely hard for me to wrap my head around of feeling a social anxiety when you don't look like a boger. <laughs> Fear rejection runs through everybody. Okay, so how many tenable times have you been rejected? You try something new and you've been rejected. Thousands? What do you mean? What are you talking about? Like, like in subtle ways, like try to t try to talk to somebody and they 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 blow me off. Uh, when you try, to, let's say, let's say you try to take a fencing class, and you 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 take that risk, and you have been rejected. So what I mean by rejection is like it's it, in subtle ways, right? Like, hey, uh, I, I have a question. Eh, you get blown off. That's a rejection. Not like someone's like, hey man, you gotta go. You gotta leave. <laughs> <laughs> It is, it is, it is. It is. Hey, I'd like your, I would, I, would, I would like some connection. No. But I don't view it as that. I have empathy for them. Outright, like you just ask for some attention and they're just like, oh, not right now. Yeah, but sometimes they do that rudely. You're at, you're at the Woo Festival, right? Yeah. Did you try to introduce yourself to anybody new? Yeah. And I did. And it was, it was like, um, like it took, it took effort. It was challenge. It was a big challenge. Were you? No, not this time. I was uh, a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I try to talk to girls, and they're just like, you know, all of a sudden they're they're walking the other direction, um, and it's subtle. Like I don't, it didn't hurt. It was just it, it just is what it is. Yeah, lock eyes, wave <laughs> on the dance floor. That just blows my mind. What? That you were rejected. Really? Yeah. I thought like I'm just, people are just into this. I've always chalked my people rejecting me up to my outside appearance. Ah. 
Like that's, I've always just made that connection. But yeah. So this is something we could, uh, get out of your mind. If I had that power, like if I just toss it out, cause that's, um, like it's an understandable thought, especially from a young person, but it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Like find the most beautiful people in the world and get them to sit down like this. And they'll tell you it's a nightmare in so many ways. And that's just kind of, it says more about life than, than physical appearance. Like everybody, it's like the, the, the tragedy just finds people, just fits in somehow. And this is what I learned. Uh, I, I worked at a bar in, uh, in Newport Beach, a terrible bar called Sharky's. It's right by the pier, super popular place. And I'd just start interviewing people and they would just, this is Newport Beach, man. These are incredibly gorgeous, rich people uh, on average, right? And yeah, California, California fought. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so these are California eights and nines. Um, maybe 30% of the bar was just that, regulars, smoking hot regulars. And I'd interview them a little bit. I'd say, hey, what's your favorite thing in the whole world? Throw them off. I never heard that in a bar before. And so they would just tell me like these terrible stories, man. And it really, that, that, that's when I got past my, uh, the physical appearance equates to inner peace or whatever, whatever the, the phrase would be, equates to, to quote unquote, good life. I and was... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why we're here, man. That's why we're here. What are your plans for the future? Just get really good at jujitsu and learn more Hakomi. Yeah. Um, and then your future, I'll, I'll tell you a dream that's coming true. Can I share with you a dream come true? Just today, my flights are booked. I'm running a jiu-jitsu school in Thailand all of July. In Koh Tao, Thailand. 10th planet Koh Tao. Yeah. Yeah. The head coach just asked me. He, okay. He'd seen me. Like, I'd met him five years ago. We went there to record a, a documentary. Travel log of jujitsu. Yeah, and uh, he hit me up recently because I've been thinking about it for for years. How do I get back to Kotal? Like, do I have to get a remote job? Like, what do I have yeah. to do? And he he offered me the best possible situation. I'm flown out. I'm housed. I can earn. And I just have to teach jitsu every day. We're a month for a month. Wow. Yeah, dream come true. That's cool. Yeah, and so hopefully, as I get better at jujitsu, more cool stuff like this can can happen. Yeah. Because I've been invited to Vietnam and India as well, but it's not like such a sweet deal as this one. This is the first one that's like hitting everything. Yeah. As a, if your career is jujitsu, is that like the the best possible gig you could ever find? Or uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's not MMA, right? It's if you if you become a competitor, like could you become a professional in jujitsu? Yeah. Is there like a, it, it, it's emerging. And so basically, you know, I thought about this a lot. I would have to make a run at it right now. So I'm, I'm 32, man. Like these, these are my peak years and I don't have many more in terms of physical competition. Right. And so if I've made a run at it right now, I could, I could do something. I could win something big. I could make some money, but it's so competitive and so hard. And I'd have to move to a real training facility like in texas or california or you know what i mean i'd have like changed everything in my life and I, i've decided not to do that most parts for much uh 
YouTube, Taipei BJJ. We made a lot of good videos you should watch. And uh, that's it, man. What? Yeah, Taipei BJJ on YouTube. And a defunct podcast leads to girlfriends. It's still it's still on Spotify. It's pretty good. Tales of Macaque podcast. M A C A Q U E. Tales of Macaque. Next time on the Trauma Dump, I will interview a DJ who goes by the name Vital Dub, but I know him as Max. We will talk about why he quit drinking alcohol and how his life is going since then. Thank you for listening to The Trauma Dump.